we have this very unique situation in India where we've got 1.35 billion people. But we also have mega fauna like the elephant, like the tiger, the lion. We have, I mean, amazing large mammals. We may end up uh, recording uh, rarer cats of which we, we know very little about. One of them is the Pantanal cat, also called the Pampas cat. Welcome to the Wildlife and Wilderness Travel and Safari Show, the world's first podcast on sustainable tourism and wildlife safaris worldwide. This show is for everyone interested in travel in the natural world, ecotourism, conservation and adventures in our planet's wild places. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Banner, biologist and director of the travel company Wildlife and Wilderness providing outstanding holiday experiences to thousands of clients for almost 25 years. If you are planning a safari or want to get in touch, then do drop us an email to podcasts at wildlifewilderness.com or visit our website at wildlifewilderness.com. Well, for this month, we have split the roundup into two parts. These are unusual times, and rather than the expected five or 10 minutes briefing from colleagues around the world, we've entered into some deeper conversations, which is a good thing, in this episode, we explore conservation in Indian national parks and catch up with developments in the Pantanal wetlands of Brazil. We'll release the second part of the monthly roundup tomorrow to keep some consistency. Talking of which, you may have noticed that we skipped a week last week after three months of weekly episodes. Coronavirus has allowed us to gain a good foothold of podcasts, but each episode is of course considerable work and we now plan to continue twice monthly. So let's start today revisiting Jahan from Shergar Tented Camp in Kana National Park. Let's talk about news from Kana. What information is coming out from the parks? So the parks have now been shut for two and a half months. So in a true sense, we don't know what sightings are like or what the tiger movements are like uh, because nobody's been in other than the forest department. But what we know is that there's been a lot of recorded cases of poaching around the park, in the buffer zones around the park. Uh, but when I say poaching, let me explain. It's not poaching in the sense of organized criminal poaching trading in wildlife, illegal wildlife paths. It's trapping and killing animals for meat. So there's been something like 150% increase in that sort of poaching, which is worrying. But we said previously that with the influx of people coming back to the villages from their cities, that um, you almost predicted this was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. So we expected this to happen because there was a huge number of people coming in and a huge number of people unemployed. So the park did ramp up their patrolling and conservation efforts. But having said that, it's a porous boundary. There are close to 100 villages abutting the park, all around the park. Yeah. So it's impossible to have a situation of 100% success in terms of uh, making sure that nobody's collecting anything illegally. Yeah, yeah. And so this bushmeat is basically feeding the villagers. Yeah, it's feeding the villagers. Most often it's something like wild boar, because wild boar will also come out into the human agriculture fields to look for food uh, but it can be other things like jungle fowl or sometimes deer and uh, traditionally it has happened because these villagers and these communities which live on the boundary of the parks have always lived off the park whether it's collecting timber for their homes or for firewood or collecting berries and roots to eat fishing in the park or uh, trapping bushmeat they have the knowledge They've existed in the park through ages, done that. Yeah. But it's also important to remember over here that these communities, while they've taken from the park, they have respected the forest and they've protected the forest while they've lived off the forest. So that's very important to remember. 
But we were talking earlier and you were saying about previously they live with a different model of having tolerance for the wildlife. And I think that's what you're getting out there yeah. is that there's no real conflict. Um, they can't discriminate with the wildlife, but at least there's no real conflict. The parks aren't closed borders in effect. Yeah. Okay. So, so what I was saying was that uh, previously the villagers lived off the resources of the forest. But they, but they always took very sustainably. They did not wipe out populations or they did not wipe out strands of forest. Because they took resources from the forest, they understood the need of taking sustainably. They lived closer to nature. They lived closer to nature. They took from the forest, but they also gave back to the forest. They would, if they, uh, for example, if they cultivated a part of the forest, they'd shift their site of cultivation every 10 or 15 years to allow the forest to regenerate. When they took meat, it was on a special occasion and it was usually shared amongst all in the village. When they you know, went to catch fish yeah. or collect roots or something like that, it was sufficient to feed the family for the day. So there was no sense of taking more than what they needed for a very simple living. Presumably that's still the case now, even though there's been an increase. Yeah, that is still the case. But of course, India has this uh, huge pro uh, problem of overpopulation uh, and also our forests are not increasing, our forests are shrinking. So the dilemma is, if you let people take a little bit, is that too much pressure on the forests? Yeah. But the other dilemma is, if you close the border of the forest to the people who've lived a harmonious life with the forest so far, if you close that border, do we as a civilization, do we as an Indian culture, lose that tolerance between human and wildlife and does that tolerance then shift to conflict so what i was saying was that you know we have this very unique situation in there where we've got 1.35 billion people yeah but we also have mega fauna like the elephant like the tiger the lion we have i mean amazing large mammals uh, all living in such close proximity to very dense populations and that has only been possible because up until now and for several centuries, for several hundreds of centuries, humans and wildlife coexisted, yeah. tolerated each other, and avoided each other. But the important thing was that they tolerated yeah. each other. The current conservation model in India, which has been, uh, been practiced since the 1970s or a little bit before that, is yeah. a model of hard boundaries where there are fences, where wildlife are not supposed to come into human areas and humans are not allowed to go into protected areas. And that model, in my mind, over time, will erode the model of tolerance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see you can see it happening. And this whole this whole tolerance between humans and animals is something which is handed down generation to generation. It's not something which can be brought in by education. It's not something which can be. If it goes, it's gone. You know, if it's lost, it's lost. It's one of those things. It's not going to be reversed. It cannot be reversed. It's one of those things that cannot be reversed. Uh, it takes several years to get to sort of attain that level of give and take, but you can't suddenly bring it back if you lose it. What's worrying here is that from the 70s, you're now into 50 years. That's a generation at least yeah. um, of living with closed borders effectively. Whilst it's not completely fenced off, um, there's going to be a loss of that understanding of the, the to and fro, as it were, between the villages in the national park absolutely we are seeing that loss we are seeing that loss although because the sort of tolerance was such a ingrained cultural thing 
uh, it's not even something that can be lost by changing the laws. You know, just by putting in a fence, uh, it's not something that suddenly gets lost. But over time, it is getting eroded. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, when you when you compare the Indian scenario to what's happened in other industrialized, very developed countries, for example, England or America or most of Europe, every area which has any form of human population pressure has no wildlife, has no megafauna. You know, you talk of the wolves of Scotland, they've gone. You talk of the bears of uh, most parts of Europe, yeah. they've been poached out, hunted out. And so people have never coexisted with wildlife in the same way that forest communities of India do. I'm sure there are some other examples, you know, amongst tribal communities in, say, Australia, New Zealand, the natives of America. But when industrialization comes in, there is no room for the wildlife. Yeah. When agriculture yeah. comes in, in a commercial way, there is no room for the wildlife, especially the mega wildlife. I mean, I'm not talking of the things like the buzzards and ospreys. I'm talking of the mega, uh, mega fauna, tigers, elephants, bears, whatever. And that has not happened in India. Both have coexisted. So it's something to learn a lot from, to take a lot from, and to make sure that that model of conservation is woven into the future models that we plan for this country. But that needs education of a greater majority of people, um, not just those that live close by the national parks. In a certain way, that's actually happening because as some of India becomes more affluent, it is affording to go on safari in its own country and look at the wildlife and understand that there's megafauna there within its national parks. I, I think what needs to happen first is that the forest department, uh, who are the custodians of all our protected areas today, need to recognize that they have the mega flora to preserve because the local communities who lived in these forests and looked after them before the forest department took over handed them a very a very rich ecosystem and if that model succeeded for hundreds of years clearly something worked and just because i mean the best thing seems to be to close off the boundaries and yep. uh assume that if there is no human interference inside, the wildlife will thrive. The question that I ask is what what are our markers for conservation? Yeah, yeah. When do we consider our conservation models to be successful? Is it purely by counting the number of tigers or elephants we have? I mean, surely if it's purely by counting the number of tigers or elephants we have, Texas has the best model of conservation because they have more tigers than India does. We have no markers to judge if there's no intervention in the life of a tiger, you know, so for example, if a tiger's injured or something like that, the forest department yeah. will always come in and treat him, radio collar him, tranquilize him. Uh, we have no uh, marker to measure whether a tiger has had any intervention, has been saved by humans once or twice. It's purely on numbers. And we have to look beyond numbers. And if we just, just look at numbers, we may have a very successful model where you have a big fenced off area with hundreds of tigers inside, but in a true sense, they might not be what, what we consider wild. But we were saying previously when we were talking a few months ago that um, the population density is probably pretty much at its peak for what these parts can hold at present. At least some of the major parts there in Madhya Pradesh. That's true. That's true. So the other big, the other big failing we've had is if we have a successful conservation model in a particular area, so let's say in Kanha, we have a good population of tigers, right? Do have we allowed for that success to grow? You know, so what do we do with the surplus tigers? 
if if all the surplus tigers go out and get killed we've been short sighted yeah. because we have something that's working but we are not capitalizing on it yeah you know it's it's like somebody has made a lot of money but he does not know how to share his wealth or use his money cleverly you know that's just yeah. a that's just a very sim- simple example that i'm giving you that for example if you look at the lions of gujarat numbers are good right so we've clearly done something right but can we capitalize on that we can't because we are still containing all those lions in there yeah uh, and when a few of them go out they get killed or they get injured so we have this model where we have been successful with numbers but we haven't created the situation for that success to be amplified and equally you will um eventually narrow the gene pool that's there as well presumably yes absolutely absolutely so i mean there are there are multiple problems which we are going to face with this current problem of small overly managed overly protected areas without providing protection to our corridors without ensuring that the animals have some flow between natural habitats so if we take Madhya Pradesh, um, the emphasis needs to be on corridors, doesn't it? That's what we're saying. It needs to be on corridors. Um, and if you took Gujarat and the lions, then they would need somewhere else to be able to spread out into. Interestingly, I was talking with Sophie and Callum at Lewa House and Lewa Wildlife Conservancy in in northern Kenya and they were saying exactly that that the the plan going forward in Kenya is to have more of these corridors that would link up the Abadares and link up Samburu with Lewa and the other conservancies through the northern rangelands such that there's migration of animals can occur much not just migration but you know animal movements can occur and therefore there's much greater mixing yeah it seems appropriate that that should be the case in Madhya Pradesh but of course you've got this population problem as well yeah yeah which is why which is why to allow for the old model where people and wildlife sort of coexisted in a along the fringes of the forest is very important no conservation model in this country is going to be 100% successful there's always going to be some level of conflict but if you minimize the conflict you have yeah. a workable solution is there any movement towards thinking in this way um towards greater corridors uh yeah there is there is uh, definitely a move to not creating but to to sustaining corridors and to protecting those areas which link up parks which already have a forest link but i think uh i think we talk of conflict too much but it was you that said that conflict would uh, be the result of decreased tolerance between humans um, because of the the way the the national parks work as an identified unit area of x amount square kilometers and that there should be no uh, to and froing yeah so conflict ultimately would be would be um inevitable with this that's exactly what i'm saying that so it depends on how you see it i for me conflict and tolerance are two sides of the same coin if you have tolerance if you have conflict it's it's a result of not having tolerance right yeah and if your tolerance is higher than your conflict you have a workable model as i said conservation in a country like india is never a 100% win win situation but if the larger percentage of the people living around these national parks accept that there will be wild animals there will be some give and take and there are mechanisms in place to allow for that whether it's schemes like compensatory payments for loss of cattle or for loss of loss of crops 
or any other mechanisms. Uh, and people accept that wildlife does exist on their doorstep. Wildlife will come out. Wildlife will take the odd goat or cow. Uh, wildlife will come and raid crops. And if that acceptance occurs, which occurred for many centuries, yeah. we have a workable model. And we have a unique model, not just a workable model, but we have a unique model. And, and, and for me, the problem today is that the forest department don't see that model as part of the way forward. So what is their approach then to fence it all off and become a, a mega zoo? Yeah, I mean, they, they certainly fence off areas where there is close proximity between humans and animals. Uh, they fence off areas where, where cattle can go in and where tigers come out. Uh, they haven't been able to fence off the whole park because uh, budgetary constraints. They do try to link corridors between parks. So they try to protect corridors. Yeah. Uh, but there's no work happening towards the, the model that we were just speaking of, where you encourage tolerance and you convert that conflict to tolerance, where education is a part of it, where understanding the local population's needs from the forest is a part of it. Do you think some of this problem will go away once we're out of the pandemic and people are returning to the cities and there's employment back there and there's going to be migration of what well, movement of peoples from the villages? I don't I don't think so. You think it will continue now? No, I think our conservation model has nothing to do with the pandemic. It's a very narrow model of conservation. It does not incorporate for local communities, which have been a big part of the forests up until now. It, uh, it's a very heavy-handed model where the forest department seemed to think that they have every answer yeah and i don't and i think unless we have a change in mindset we are going to be moving down this track of protected area and fenced off areas and uh, excluding humans and wildlife from each other yeah which is i'm not yeah. saying i'm not saying we need to open up the parks and let people take whatever they took and stuff like that i'm not saying that is the answer uh, but the answer is somewhere in the middle ground between the two yeah on a lighter note, you did have some news um, of the wildlife within the park. <laughs> we, last time we were talking about two Ellies that had walked in. Yeah, so there's a there's two young Tuskers who entered the protected area of Kana Tiger Reserve. And they're still there. Clearly, they've found natural fodder and there's plenty of water in the park, so they feel safe. But at some point, it is likely that they will move out in, in search for a herd or in search for females. And we'll see what happens then at the moment the forest department are very closely monitoring them yeah so there may be a case of you know herding them if they do start moving in a particular direction there may be a case of trying to herd them through protected forest rather than coming out into agriculture fields but we'll see when they when they start looking for a female we'll know that that's happening and i'll keep you updated on that that's great and you've got, uh, whilst you've, the parts are closed at the moment, you've got the monsoon coming shortly. So presumably there'll be no activity now until, what, October time? Yeah. So the park will be shut. When I mean activity, you're not going to get yeah. much information out from the National Park until October. Yeah, we won't, we won't get much information. Although patrolling and all carries on, they actually intensify patrolling during this time because the grass is high and it's more important to be vigilant. So we won't get any sort of safari news out. But talking of the monsoons, they've already hit Kerala and they're sort of halfway up the west coast of India. And probably in the next 10 or 15 days, they'll be in central India. So certainly by the end of July, June, we'll have the monsoons having arrived in central India. Yeah. 
uh, and it'll change things. You know, all the water bodies, all the streams will be gushing. The grazing will become rich again. So in a matter of a week's time, from a very parched, dry landscape, we'll suddenly have this verdant landscape. Fresh grasses, yeah, yeah, which is good news for the wildlife. Yeah, and the wild the wildlife will all then spread out around through the summer months. You have all the ungulates around the waterholes, and therefore the predators are there as well. And uh, ten days later, you've got herds of deer across the meadows and rich grazing. So it's a yeah, it's a time of plenty. It's a very dramatic time because a change happens literally in a week's time. So it's very dramatic to be there during that time. Yeah, no, I'm sure. The insect life suddenly explodes. You know the frogs and the various other amphibians. Uh, it's it's quite cool to see. Yeah, quite a special time. Cool. That's great, Jahan. Thanks. You're welcome, Steve. Now we welcome back our friend from Brazil. How's how's things in the Pantanal, Guiliano? Hi, Steve. Um, everything good here. The weather is beautiful, blue skies, a, a, a great temperature, not, not too hot. And yeah, we're just in, enjoying our time here. <laughs> Sounds idyllic. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so what's new on the wildlife front? Oh, well, uh, uh, we have had uh, the regular sightings, you know, of the smaller mammals. Uh, the... The holler monkeys keep waking us up earlier than we would like, usually. <laughs> Parrots are very happy uh, and very loud, of course. <laughs> Tapirs are walking a lot, you know. Um, there, some of the trees have fresh tracks every day. And, you know, uh, we have been talking about the camera traps often. And, again, uh, Jaguar is walking around. Uh, we have new photos of the giant armadillo on on another trail you know so that's new record for that trail yeah so that it's really cool i mean uh, really fantastic fantastic i mean wildlife is is thriving so when you talk about tapirs and new trails and more camera trap sightings do you have any idea on the number of tapirs you may have or number of jaguar and is it the same giant armadillo Right, that's a good question. I, I'm not quite sure of how big the territory of the giant armadillo would be, but that's probably a, a different one because they are almost a mile and a half apart from each other, you know, more than two kilometers away, the sightings away from each other. I don't know if that giant armadillo would uh, walk that far. Uh, maybe we don't even have uh, that answer. That's really exciting, potentially, to have two. Yeah, it could well be a, a different animal. Uh, and like tapirs, depends. In one trail, I can surely identify one male, one female, and a baby. You know, so there's at least three different individuals that walk the same trail. Uh, and uh, tapirs walk a lot. I mean, tapirs will, will walk many kilometers uh, every night. But I'm sure we have like uh, four or five different individuals, you know, that walk here in the property. So when you talk about the property, how many kilometers of trails do you have or how far does the property extend in different directions? To give people an idea of how, how big an area we're talking about. Well, I'll start saying that our property is, is very small for Pantanal standards. You know, we have some something around uh, 500 acres 
so it's kind of a, a we have like three kilometers in in a way and less than a kilometer you know in, in the other way um, but luckily the other properties around us which are like cattle ranches they're very well protected I mean the, uh, nature is preserved in in a lot of these properties in the Pantanal even though they have some pasture for cattle uh, one of our neighbors has like 20,000 acres of land here and, and you know that's more average for the Pantanal thousands of acres yeah. and and most of his land is just untouched uh, wilderness you know so of course these animals are not locked in our property they're not fenced the properties are not fenced mostly you know so these these animals are just roaming around like the the cats that we catch on the cameras and sometimes sometimes see them yeah um they have huge territories you know that walk around and we are just you know we within their territory yeah of course there is a risk for animals if they roam too far you know to to other areas but i think here i mean they're really really well protected luckily so far you know if we talk more about the cats then the big cats is there any ongoing research in the area which identifies individuals um, I know that they know specific individuals down uh, from out from Porto Joffre right uh, which is the main Jaguar viewing area but is that the case across the Pantanal no unfortunately not like uh, here in the northern Pantanal the only areas where they have been uh, doing proper research and identifying individuals and in, and in, and having an estimate of population is mostly in the Cuyaba River, yeah. Porto Joffre is a is an area in the Cuyaba River, as you mentioned, and the Paraguay River, which is uh, west of the Pantanal. Yeah. And of course, in some spots in southern Pantanal, there is uh, ongoing research as well. In our area here, there is not, you know. So of course, this is helpful. We'll, we will be trying to help the researchers, you know, in, in our area with the data that we are collecting. Uh, for example, I have uh, identified four different individuals of ocelots yeah. in, in our property, you know, with these cameras. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty neat. Uh, having touch with researchers, you know, there are other species of smaller cats, of course, that are much rarer. And actually, uh, these researchers are, are pretty excited that I have my cameras here because, you know, eventually uh, we may end up uh, recording uh, rarer cats of, of which we, we know very little about. Can you name the species? Um, well, uh, one of them is the Pantanal cat, also called the Pampas cat. They may be considered different species, two separate species now, you know, but it's, it's almost the size of a house cat and lives in grasslands in central Brazil mostly. I have never seen one of those. I, I, I would say that's my nemesis cat, <laughs> the, the Pampas or Pantanal cat. Uh, yeah, but we know it's here, you know, it should be here. Yeah. Uh, but we need, we need, of course, we need cameras. I mean, that, that will help us. It looks like you were looking around for one then. <laughs> well, yes, I, I'm just, there's some, some kind of commotion with the birds here uh, outside. Again, I'm sitting at the restaurant at Aymara Lodge and there's something going on here you know uh sometimes we get lots of uh, white tipped doves uh on the grounds here in in more in the more open they like the open uh, soil of course yeah and there is some sort of raptor that's 
learning uh, that this is a good spot for hunting, for hunting doves. I haven't seen the raptor yet, but I, sometimes we just see, you know, the, the doves will fly away. And yeah. that's certainly a raptor attacking them. Probably uh, a falcon or, or a small hawk. Uh, one of my favorite animals from my time in uh, the Pantanal area was the giant anteater. Have you got many of those on the property as well? Are they more towards the grasslands of the southern Pantanal? Right, yeah, we don't see them very often here. Uh, they are a lot more common in southern Pantanal in, in the open, open grasslands, as, as you mentioned. Um, but we do see them here sometimes. Last year we had a few sightings in our trails. Uh, there was one that often was coming, let's say every three weeks he was coming um, to the grounds, to the compound here at night. So we saw them a couple of times at least. And the cameras were catching him a, lot, um, a little more often. But they are not a very common animal uh, here in our, our area. In fact, yeah. Uh, we see more jaguars than anteaters here. <laughs> and what about uh, primate species? You've mentioned black howlers. Yeah, they are the black howlers or black and gold howler monkeys. Uh, last week, I was very unfortunate to park one of our pickup trucks under the tree where they had planned to spend the night. So next morning, we had a hard <laughs> time washing that truck. It was covered on, on <laughs> monkey poops. And I don't know why, maybe because of the fruits and resin that they eat, uh, it's very sticky. So we had a lot of work to clean that <laughs> truck again. But we have a troop of these howler monkeys that live here around the, the lodge. I mean, this is their territory, so they don't go very far away. Of course, they, they, they use their vocalization to, to let the other howler monkeys know where they are and where not to come. But apart from the howlers, we have two other species of monkeys here in northern, northern Pantanal. We have the tufted capuchins, uh, which are very, very smart monkeys. And also uh, a species of marmoset, the black-tailed marmosets. You know, marmosets are, are very small, tiny monkeys. They don't have prehensile tails, so they don't, they don't hang from their tails, let's say, yeah. you know live in small groups and feed mostly on sap from the trees and fruit. They're quite cute characters as well. <laughs> they are cute. They're kind of ugly if you, if you look them closely, you know. Their faces doesn't have any hair, but they're, they're definitely cute. Cute little monsters. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about camera traps, you know, and uh, a few weeks ago, one of the cameras uh, recorded people walking the trail. I mean, they were not employees of the lodge. They were not tourists. These were maybe hunters, you know, walking around. And that made, made me think of whether some of our folks have, have been speaking about India and Africa, you know, when a situation like a quarantine, a lockdown, may force people to go hunting and create pressure on, on the wildlife, you know. I don't think that's the case here yet, but uh, we're kind of being more, well, taking care of that too as well, you know. Like, we have more cameras in the areas, in the borders. It's interesting you say that because yeah. I was talking with Jahan earlier and he was saying it's about a 150% increase in poaching 
within Kana National Park in India, and that was primarily for bushmeat for wow. feeding themselves because there's many people come back to the villages from the cities and right. they've not got employment there and they're needing to feed themselves. So whether it's happening with you, who knows? Yeah, yes, I know that that's a big risk, and and I'm yeah. yeah, I'm starting to get concerned about that. You know, not that we have any more evidence than that that than random people, you know, walking our trails. Yeah, that has kept us alert about that, and we we hope we hope this situation will be will be over soon. Yeah, you know, of course. So so the wildlife will not be will not suffer from that. Yeah. And what about the seasons there now? What sort of season? You're drying out, presumably. That's right. Um, yeah. Um, no, we had rains, uh, which was uh, kind of unusual. You know, two weeks ago we had rains again, uh, which was good for, for the environment because uh, the water level raised a bit. Uh, since we didn't have a very strong rainy season, you know, we were, we were quite happy to have some rain. Yeah. But this is definitely dry season already, you know, so the sky is, is very clear, very blue. But it, this is also the winter in, in, in the southern hemisphere. Although, you know, we cannot call it winter, sometimes we have a cold front that, that pushes over uh, Brazil and temperature will drop a bit, especially during the night, you know, so... Uh, some of the nights we were getting like 18 degrees Celsius degrees here in the Pantanal, which is very cold for us. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice hot evening here. <laughs> yeah, and, and during the day, it's reaching uh, 30, 32 degrees during the day, which is and not as bad, not too bad, you know, comparing to times when it gets to 38 or, or even 40. I'm seeing a, a capuchin monkey on the trees right now as as we speak. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame we're doing a, an audio and not a video. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> well, it's been good again, Guiliana. Thanks for talking with me. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Keep up the good spirits and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Great to talk to you. That wraps up the first part of our monthly roundup. In the second part, we will be catching up with Frederick from Aurora Safari Camp as the seasons change rapidly in Lapland. And we go to the Okavango Delta in Botswana for the first time to hear about the fabulous wildlife there. Be sure to tune in. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe and share this podcast. And I hope you can join me again soon. Wildlife and Wilderness is at all protected. <laughs>